random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, Eddie, you do the honors? I do the honors. Well, I've been looking for this guy for a while. I've seen him at a couple of shows. But in light of a couple of things, one being the 50th anniversary of Ghost Rider. Can you believe it? 1972 till now. And he has a significant input for that in the latter run of the uh, original series, but also a very much involved with the publication of the Uncanny X-Men trading cards. Let us welcome... As well as the man responsible for a major portion of the people that are more than meets the eye, Transformers. And the character Sleepwalker. All this and more awaits when we talk to American comic book writer, editor, and penciler... The episode ended. Bob Budiansky. Welcome, Bob. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. This is what happens when Peter gives me the intro and can't stop until I finish the intro or something well, like that. I had to throw some of the other stuff in. The, That's, big, the big guns. That is good. The big the, technically, trans- the big plasma guns, because you know Optimus Prime probably has like a plasma gun. Or whatever he wants to. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you. And also, uh, first, uh, commonality, I want to say that another fellow Bronx-born boy uh, like myself. That's that where, is true. That is where yeah. you started now, and... Uh, uh, good times were there. I mean, in my case, about the first 12 years of life, but then it was time to move on. But we're here for you, and where shall we begin? Uh, I see part of your bio info is about getting reintroduced to comics when you're in college, but when did it really start for your um, introduction to comics and what you got uh, attracted to and liked to see or read? Well, I started probably reading comics or at least looking at them when I was probably about five years old, but I have two older brothers, and they brought comic books into the house. So um, so I just started looking at them then, and then I eventually got an allowance, and a uh, weekly allowance, and started buying my own. Uh, first issue of comic book that I bought was Justice League of America number six, mm. Wheel of Misfortune, which would have been around 1962, I think. Sometime in the spring of 62, late spring of 62. I still have it. And uh, and after that, there was like no stopping me. I spent all my allowance money on buying comic books until I got to high school. And then once I got to high school, I dropped I dropped the habit because I got new... to college. Yeah. And then I was working as an artist with a student newspaper, and a friend of mine who was also an artist in the newspaper said, "Hey, you know, do you like comics? You should check this out." You know, and he showed me some things that I was completely unfamiliar with, and I said, "This looks pretty good. I've never seen anything like this." And it was actually Conan the Barbarian. And, um, and that got me started back in comics again. I started buying some comics and you know, getting more interested in them again. And, uh, and I would, that's how I got back into it. I would hope he walked up to you and goes, Hey, kid, comics. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't like, know if that happened. But anyway, so that's, about, sudden, that's about how I got what in and t- out of comics. The floating in and head. out and back in. And what uh, other titles got you in in the beginning from a youngster? As a youngster, yeah, uh, like for, from when I was like six, seven years old, eight years old. Well, initially I was a DC fan, so I was buying 
a lot of the a lot of the DC superhero titles, like uh, like I said, Justice League of America, which is by far my favorite, and Green Lantern, and the Flash, and the Atom, and Hawk Hawkman, and and some Superman. Rare, occasionally, occasionally Batman, especially when they change his look back in the mid '60s, and um, and then uh, then I've, but then as I got a little older. You know, within a couple of years, I started liking the Marvel comics. They were definitely uh, was more to them. You know, there was a little, a little more meat on the characters, and uh, I began began appreciating the, the the incredible imagination of, uh, of guys like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko was already on his kind of on his way out when I started. But um, but you know, Dirk Ditko and Kirby. So I was into Fantastic Four and Spider Man, Daredevil. You know, that's, those are the main titles I think I was collecting at that time. And what about like the uh, when you would see a title that you know you maybe like sample a little bit and you're just like, eh, it's not for me. Were there any titles like that? Well, that's kind of like asking, what's your least favorite song? Who remembers those? Things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, yeah, I, I picked up this book and I didn't like it. I put it down. And I bought one issue and then I forgot about it. I don't remember. You know, so I'm sure there were I'm sure there were occasions where I I'll tell you well. Related to that, so in the, around 67, 68, which is around the time I stopped buy, uh, buying comic books, um, DC went through a massive change of uh, creative talent on some of their books. So they dropped Carmine Infantino from The Flash. I no longer bought The Flash after that. <laughs> you know, and uh, I, think, uh, Green, I think Green Lantern, I think uh, Gil Kane moved on eventually. You know, but anyway, yeah, they're... I was used to a certain style and a style change, so I, I moved on. That's funny that you noticed, though, like at you know at a young age like that, those changes and whatnot in terms of. Well, like, I was already you know starting high school. I wasn't you know a little kid, but I, I I noticed the artwork really early on. I I knew Mike Sikowski was the artist on Justice League of America, and I really liked Mike Sikowski, and I really liked Gil Kane, and I really liked Carmen Infantino, and when Carmen Infantino took over the uh, drawing Batman at least for a brief period of time in the mid '60s, around '65 or '66, I started buying Batman because I liked Carmen Infantino's work, especially when he was doing all those covers back then. They were great. So um, him and Murphy Anderson typically were doing the covers. So I came in before the whole Neil Adams revolution. I mean, I, I should say I dropped out before that, so I didn't get into that look of Batman and other DC characters. But on the other hand. I was very aware of who the artists were, and and when an artist who I didn't care for, uh, you know, did a fill-in issue or, or something, or took over the book from another artist I did like, I'll give you another story, which is I remember looking at Fantastic Four number two. My my one of the one of the kids in my apartment building had it. I was looking at it, and I was thinking, oh, this is really ugly stuff. Hmm. Really don't really don't like this. And then I remember. Uh, probably about two years later, visiting uh, our family friends in Kaimisha Lake. And um, and they had a couple of older boys in the family, and they had comic books, including the Fantastic Four. And I'm saying, wow, this looks pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> because Jack Kirby's work had, had really evolved within a couple of years from the, the kind of heavy-handed, ugly monster look into much more jazzy, sci-fi look. And... Um, and so I remember, you know, looking at this Fantastic Four book, but it was one in particular that uh, our, our family friends had, and uh, thinking, this is, this is okay. And then when I got back to the Bronx, I started buying the Fantastic Four eventually. It's funny. So I, I was definitely aware of uh, styles of artwork 
It's funny you say that, though, with uh, Kirby, because the element of, you know, you were at a young age, you didn't get it, and then you got a little bit older, you're like, wow, I like this stuff. Well, it's not so much I didn't get it. Well, maybe I didn't get it, but it's also he changed. If you compare FF number two to, like, FF number... I remember the specific issue was Lafont Terrible, or however you pronounce it. Uh, That's issue 21 or 23 or something? 24. (laughs) Yeah, 24, actually, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's like two years later, and he just, you know, the, the style changed. Maybe it was also the fact that he had different anchor on him. I don't remember that part, but, you know, things, things changed. So I, 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 I reacted to the changes. It's hilarious, though, that you mentioned that exact issue because we uh, record our Patreon bonus show, The Fantastic Voyage. That's the issue we're talking about later today. So the universe wow, is— like you set me up for that. <laughs> Evidently. <No. laughs> wow. The universe is cool. Universe is cool. Well, and then even before that, we started recording that we, uh, you and or I mentioned our area, and you mentioned Kayamisha Lake. So for those listeners who may not be aware, Kayamisha Lake, Sullivan County, upstate New York, where we are, that is Peter and myself. <laughs> so, yeah, nice yeah, connection there. I definitely there. had to throw that in after you mentioned where you were earlier. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. And, you know, in regards to you, you mentioned Gil Kane earlier. I'm a big Gil Kane fan. I did not like him initially when I first got into reading comics, and then slowly but surely— I learned to appreciate the man's style to the point where I absolutely adore it. And, you know, I believe in the 1990s when you were at Marvel, were you working alongside Gil? Did Gil come in every once in a while and do different things? Because I, I feel like I'm misremembering, but maybe not. Well, when I was Spider-Man, uh, well, Spider-Man group editor, well, we, we actually were called editors-in-chief, but we had our own uh, subgroups, some uh, fiefdoms we called them. <laughs> Gil Kane actually drew a few Spider-Man issues uh, under under my... You know, overview as a as a supreme Spider-Man editor. Yes, so it was, it was a thrill to have Gil Kane, you know, a guy who I really worshipped uh, when I was a kid, actually working on one of my books that I was editing. It's it, the, his stuff is phenomenal, and like in all honesty, he is one of the best Spider-Man artists of all time. Oh yes, yes, definitely. And I do remember mentioning all these names again, Gil Kane, with some Spider-Man, but also I think the first name character that comes to mind is for me conan i think also the adam like we mentioned before you did actually and uh, and even back to carmine infantino i think the first i saw of him was not so much the flash that came later in green lantern but i think i first came into that with uh uh, maybe that as well i I collected that series later but spider woman oh that that was the yeah yeah well i was i was already working at marvel when most of the spider women's came out and in fact i drew a few of the covers um but uh yeah, that was that was later on. So I was, um, you know, I was actually. I, I remember when early on in my Marvel career, the one the only time I met uh, Carmen Infantino, uh, I was my first job at Marvel was I was editorial assistant in the British department. I think he was then, but it could have been when I was assistant editor for Jim Salakrup. But this would have been like the late seventies, early eighties, and I had to I had to do an errand. I had to I had to, I had to message something over or pick something up from Carmine's art studio wherever he was working in Manhattan. So I went over and met him briefly and, you know, either dropped something off or picked something up. <laughs> mm-hmm. so my, my one encounter with Carmine, he was, you know, nice guy from what little I remember. Yeah. Yeah, for me, again, with Carmine having met uh, for one autograph, and that was on a Spider-Woman issue with uh, Werewolf by Night coming in the window. Wait, you met you met Carmine Infantino. You I never did. told me that one. I didn't realize. Well, maybe it was before I even met you. But wow. it was before the Big Apple Comic Con was that. It was the New York Comic Book Marketplace in Manhattan, uh, Times Square yeah. area across from the Garden, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, and met and got like I said an, an autograph on on that. 
and then realize, oh, Flash, oh, Green Lantern, you know, some other stuff. Very distinctive, like Gil Kane, uh, type of images and so on with uh, with him. Now, in regards to, uh, you know, Gil, like, what would you say is his penultimate work that, you know, you gravitated towards the most? Well, for me, the definitive work for Gil was Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. And he was on that book for years and years, and his style was just it just set apart by from all the other artists working at that in that era i thought you know he he just had this really elegant dynamic style a very consistent um knew how, you know he told the story beautifully you know so he was he always knew what was going on it was always really super clear you know he he just he just knew how to draw comics he was he was, he was terrific uh the, the one criticism that people have leveled against gill over the years and I kind of, kind of agree is that he shouldn't have inked himself as he got more advanced in his career, you know, more more independent or having more clout. He wanted to ink himself because he'd make more money that way, I guess. Mm. And you know, he, his inking was 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 a little bit crude, cruder compared to cruder compared to some of the other people that inked him. So I always thought he was uh, he, he 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 looked better when when he was assigned a really good inker and. and uh, and he wasn't inking himself, but even even when he inked himself, he still had the power and the the the, the, the dynamics that uh, made his work stand apart. So yeah, cu- he's, he's a pretty talented individual. I'm curious with Gill's work, what is the biggest uh, you know visual takeaway that you can tell? It's you know an identifier. Like what is the Gill Kane style? Because I have mine. I'll tell mine after yours. <laughs> well, there's the famous you know. Up the nostrils point yep. of view. Which, <laughs> is that what you were thinking? Sure. <laughs> okay, now that you mention it, yep. The man draws a fantastic snooter. Every single time, I love it. <laughs> I had to go right for that. You know? <laughs> and if you're not sure, just look somewhere on that page, and you see his elongated or flattened, however you want to call it, initials. The G on top of the K, and a little dot somewhere, I think. The man had the and, classiest looking signature on that stuff. I love seeing that on like those, because uh, I recently read the uh, the Micro World one, the uh, annuals of Spectacular Web of an Annual with Spidey, and it is friggin' gorgeous, that story. I cannot recommend that enough. Hmm. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Effective pause, <laughs> that's all, that's fine. With respect to other titles that you've worked on, Bob, uh, let's go over to, if we can, uh, Sleepwalker. All yours, it looks like. All 33 issues that, personally, I have and haven't touched yet. So how about for those who are uninformed? Eddie's sleepwalking through his collection. Let's go Let's go sleepwalking for a little bit. Okay. Anything specific? How did it come about, this character, and, you know, what, what brought on, what was the incentive, the impetus for bringing this to life? Okay, so the, the, the thing that... Uh, first triggered my idea of Sleepwalker. Uh, it probably goes back to the mid-1980s. So I was a Marvel editor at that time, and Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief, and he would have weekly editorial meetings, and he'd bring up different topics for, for discussion. And I remember uh, one particular meeting, he said that if Superman really existed in this world, uh, we wouldn't all, you know, we, the various nations throughout the world wouldn't be thinking, oh, we have Superman to protect us, what a hero. Instead, we, the nations of the world would be figuring out, how do we defend against this guy? He's, he's an alien who could destroy us. Now, the, 
the prejudice in favor of Superman is that, well, he looks like the, the stereotypical all-American, you know, here, you know, young man, right? He's, you know, good-looking and white and, you know, muscular. and He looks like one of us, so we accept him. So I'm thinking, well, what if we had a hero on Earth who looks like a bug-eyed monster? You know, how would we react to that? You know, so our prejudice against bug-eyed monsters would, would, kick into, would, would, would kick into gear. We wouldn't just accept him based on his actions. We would respond to him based on his looks. And that was the germ of the idea behind Sleepwalker. And then my interest in dreams, and um, I did have an interest back then in, in the, 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 the psychology of dreams and so on. So I brought all that together, and eventually that evolved into the Sleepwalker character. And it's interesting. I think, uh, did they ever release an action figure of the character in the 90s? Because I know fairly recently Hasbro with the Marvel Legends line did. No, no, as far as I know, it, it's just the recent one that came out uh, this past spring from Hasbro. How cool That's was it to time. see that? Oh, it was great. I loved it. You know, I was like, wow, this is my, this is a toy on the character that I created. This is terrific. Uh, I, I was hoping it would be in the movie, you know, that character would be in the movie, but he's in the Doctor Strange uh, Multiverse of Madness collection of, of Hasbro action figures, but sadly he did not make it into the movie. And it's fun- it is funny you say that as a point because sometimes they will like do the comic accurate version of a character that may be a spoiler in the movie. So the fact, yeah, yeah Sleepwalker is, you know, and the fact that it's taken that long for a figure to be made of the character is kind of mind boggling because Sleepwalker was one of the most popular characters in the Marvel era of the 1990s. It was a top seller at one point, and yeah, for a couple of years. I don't want to over, I don't want to overstate it, but it, it lasted 33 issues, which is okay. It's not like. Uh... You know, obviously, not Spider-Man or the X-Men that lasts forever. You know, it's, uh, it's had its moment and it's moved on. And I, um, I it was so, a part yeah, of they're not gonna, Marvel toy companies aren't going to put out a product based on a character that no, no longer has a comic book or an audience following it. You know, so uh, I could see why it never made it into the action figures. I'm surprised it made it recently into action figures. Like, if it had a movie connection, that would make a lot of sense. But it, apparently, it didn't. But it still, they still made it. Were you aware at the uh, time of the uh, rumor and innuendo about the possibility of Sleepwalker showing up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a brief period? I was not. That was one of those, like, I believe Sleepwalker and Darkhawk were two characters that were, like, heavily rumored to be debuting. And, like, at one point, like, I remember going to my local comic shop and seeing on the wall a copy of Sleepwalker. And I go, why is that there? They go, he might be debuting in the MCU soon. And it's like, wow, you know... Like, just all these random characters are showing up, and it's cool to see. Well, <clears throat> give it time. Every character Marvel ever invented uh, will show up in the MCU. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, 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 I, I just have to be patient. He'll, he'll show up somewhere someday. <laughs> well, with respect again to Sleepwalker, and then we'll, we'll move on. Has this character been anywhere else but his own title? Uh, shown up in anybody else's yeah, title? or shown up in other books. I mean, I don't really... I don't collect Marvel comics. They don't send me copies of books that have nothing to do with me. So um, he's he's guest starred in books. He had a, I think he had a four issue miniseries tie into like a Civil Wars or something a few years ago. Hmm. So that was you know that was a big comeback. He had his own miniseries, but I wasn't involved in any of that. So I you know if if he shows up in a comic book tomorrow, you know 
you would probably find out about it before I would. You know, <laughs> I don't go to the shops to check out what's on the st- what's on the racks. Mm-hmm. So. And now, with respect to the one that I really, you know, to the point where when I did see it the first time, got a couple of eleven by seventeens of the Transformers. Transformers, exactly right. Yeah. The Ghost Rider. In the interest of fairness, Eddie, your Ghost Rider should be the last one because that's the main event. Think about it. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we we go so back. And, Bob, I, please put up with this because he goes back and forth more than I do with this. Whether we're talking about Disney Plus episodes and we get to the end before the beginning I, and know, movies. I, if you want, I could take a break. You two can argue out which <laughs> thing you want to ask me about next, and I'll come back. Whatever you want. Well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I want to ask what he wants for breakfast. Oh, oh we're going <laughs> to feed the man too. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Not a problem, but let's just meet somewhere instead. So, Transformers. Okay. I hear they're more than meets the eye. Is that true? <laughs> In the eye of the beholder. So, and I've heard is that it's true. It's up to you if that's true or not. You know, everybody has to make their own uh, conclusion. They are robots in disguise. Now, would you, would you, what kind of disguise would you give a robot? I was thinking like a gigantic, you know, uh, trench coat, like the thing with a yeah, you know, hat. yeah, like the thing, the old thing with the trench coat and the big hat, floppy hat over. And the yeah, shades. Yeah. Why is that guy leaking motor oil? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what always, what always, you know. Ma- made it very uh, strange to me, the whole concept was they're robots in disguise and they choose disguises that we recognize in our world even though they're not from here. So, you know, I think we went through different um, machinations to figure out, like, how, why is it that they want to look like, you know, a Camaro or a jet fighter or a, or a dinosaur or whatever? Why do they choose? Those? But anyway, that's, we can we can delve into into mythology about transformers for hours and not come up with a not come up with a a, 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 a sensible conclu- um, explanation for a lot of what's going on in that in that mythology. But and there's so yeah. much of you know the franchise like I can barely you know scrape the top like there's so much that there is in the uh, world of transformers and so much was heavily influenced by the comic books and so much right. by the toys the animated series etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's like it's cool. Like, what is it like knowing that you have that little, you know, it may be little or maybe big, that part, the impact of your involvement, and it's this multi-billion-dollar franchise. Well, it's great to know that something that I did as as a job back in the nineteen, the latter half of the nineteen eighties, uh, you know, just pu- pumping out these comic books and writing these character bios and coming up coming up with these names for Transformers that that all that work has um, has outlasted the actual time when I created it. Because most comic books are very uh, ephemeral. You know, like you read it, you put it down, that's the end of it. But Transformers, you know, goes on and on and on. Those, those, those stories get reprinted all the time. Those character names are still in use. So it's very heartening to know that I created something that has that kind of longevity, that kind of following and it has so much meaning to so many fans all these years later. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage. 
where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And when, you know, the animated series got its uh, motion picture uh, debut in the 1980s featuring uh, that little-known actor Orson Welles, uh, just seeing that movie and hearing your, like, go to the movie theater and you're sitting there and you're hearing character names that you thought up one afternoon being spoken on the big screen. That must be, like, one of the most surreal yet coolest feelings. Well, you're making the assumption that I went to the movie theater to watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a big leap of faith on your part. Oops. I was in my 30s. I didn't go to see animated movies about Saturday morning cartoons on my day off. Mm. I, in fact, I've never watched an episode of the animated series. But Orson uh, Welles. <laughs> what, yeah. Well, I liked Orson Welles uh, in Citizen Kane. I thought he was great. <laughs> but I wasn't you know, really interested in seeing him as a talking planet <laughs> in Transformers the movie. Now, I was the editor of the Transformers movie adaptation of that animated movie, so I was familiar with it. I had the script. So from the script and from the, um, the stills from the movie that we were provided from the movie studio, so that the artist could draw the comic book, I was very familiar with what went on in the movie. And, and then in, 19, no, in 2006 or 2008, IDW hired me to do another adaptation of that movie. So I was the writer on that, and that not, no, I was also the editor this time. I was the writer this time. So yeah, I, I've had some connection to the movie, but I didn't go watch it. <laughs> I got I got to say though, on an aside with uh, Orson Welles, isn't it odd that that's his last movie? Well, I'm sure he didn't. Know, I'm sure he didn't pick that movie thinking this will be my last movie. Then I'll <laughs> I'll expire. No, I mean I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is kind of odd, but you never know what's going to be your last anything. You know? That's could exactly right. Meal, could be your last uh, phone call. In this case, it was his last movie. So, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of odd. But he, also, be, but he rose to the ranks of a full planet. So, you know, it wasn't like he went out small. He went out pretty big. <laughs> I never saw it like that. What great yeah. way to turn that around. Yep, absolutely. A, a show I listened to, they refer to him as the Transformers franchise's Orson Welles, and it, it gives me a laugh every single time I hear that. <laughs> so, well, the idea with Transformers, and I see there's at least half a dozen titles that came as a result, uh, whether it's Generations or Headmasters or the Transformers Universe. Was it just a matter of trying to tell different parts of the Transformers, so to speak, yeah, other than just the main titles, if you recall? Well, I, I, I think the main thing was Transformers was, was a huge, unexpected hit for Marvel. So, Marvel was looking for various ways to uh, expand the brand, you know, come up with different ideas that would sell more comic books. Simple as that. The Marvel Universe, uh, me, the Transformers Universe books, which were modeled after the Marvel Universe books, you know, like was a natural, easy, you know, like, like a, a slam dunk sort of a, a thing to put out, but we already had all the artwork and all the... Uh, all the text from the Transformers bios that were being featured in the comic book and that I was writing anyway. So, um, so that was an easy thing to do. 
And then the headmasters, um, Hasbro was rolling out these new lines of toys, and we, we, me and the editor, I guess, at the time, uh, thought, well, here's an opportunity to do um, a spinoff from the regular series. We'll do a series on the headmasters and how they get integrated into the greater Transformers mythology, and that's what we did. And now we bring it to, can we please, Johnny Blaze and Ghost Rider and Zarathos and all that stuff? Can we do that, Peter, now? Sure, Eddie. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Time for the main event. Fine, just about. Let's get ready to flame on. Oh, wait, that's Johnny Storm. And a wrestling thing, yes, okay. Boxing, Eddie. Michael oh. Buffer. Competitive sports. There we go. Physical contact, yes, all that stuff. So we have you down here. I see it as uh, doing the artwork for about a dozen or so art, uh, issues of Ghost Rider, co-plotter also, and um, getting into that, um, they needed somebody. How did that, you know, get given to you for an assignment to do? Well, it all began with Big Ben. Whoa, okay. I know, that was, that was kind of a curveball for you, right? Yeah, yeah. So, all right, so when I was working in the Marvel British Department, uh, the only original book we were putting out was Captain Britain. Uh, everything else was reprint, reprint books. And um, so I was there as an editorial assistant, uh, but I was also helping out with some of the artwork here and there. I was just starting at Marvel, and I was looking for opportunities. Anyway, eventually Ron Wilson became the artist who drew um, Captain Britain. And, and as, as the artist on Captain Britain, Ron was great. He always, he's always been great at drawing action, like really powerful, dynamic action between muscular superhero-type characters and supervillain-type characters. That was his strength. He did not care for drawing backgrounds. So, so I was brought, a, a, brought aboard, since I was already there, uh, to, to draw backgrounds for Ron Wilson, because what was really important for Captain Britain was to make it look like it was in England, <laughs> and not just uh, have you know, these kind of generic backgrounds of you know, boxy-looking buildings and so on, but to make it look like England. So I drew one cover where Captain Britain is fighting the Red Skull with Big Ben in the background in great detail. And, um, and I drew Piccadilly Circus and Trafalgar Square and you know, other, other locales throughout the comics that I did the backgrounds for. Um, so I was known as a guy who could do good backgrounds. You know, cut to a couple of years later, and uh, the editor of Ghost Rider, I think it was Jim Salakrup at that time, um, he was looking for an artist to draw a spaceship. So strangely enough, there was an issue of Ghost Rider where he's fighting. He was, he was riding the coattails of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was super popular back in the late 70s. And um, they, they introduced this, some kind of out, outer space story. And on the cover, it was supposed to be this big, this big, big spaceship chasing Ghost Rider through the desert or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the artist who was drawing the interior of the book, uh, Don Perlin, had more of a, I guess, more of a traditional 1950s approach to drawing that kind of stuff, you know, like flying saucers and missiles, the spaceships. And Jim wanted something that looked like it was out of Star Wars or Close Encounters with all the, all the detail and, you know, all the things that made those spaceships really stand out. So he called me up and he said, Bob, can you draw this cover? And uh, that was my first Ghost Rider cover. I think that was around issue 33. And 
as a result of that cover, I became the regular cover artist on Ghost Rider for a couple of years. I drew almost, I drew like two thirds of the covers over like a thirty-plus issue span, over about thirty-five or thirty-six issues. Um, so I drew like a whole bunch of covers, uh, and I wasn't drawing the interiors. I was doing, I was, I was, I was on staff, I think, as an as an assistant editor at that time. So um, eventually, Ghost Rider needed an interior artist, and I was asked, "Do you want to draw Ghost Rider?" Sure, that's why, you know, that's why, that was my ambition when I first got a job at Marvel, was to become a regular monthly comic book artist. So that's how I got involved. So it all began with Big Ben. Mm, exactly. I think I kind of remember that spaceship issue where I want to say the, the character of the orb may have been in that one as well. I don't even remember. I just drew the cover. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, somehow that comes to mind also. But the orb was also a motorcycle rider as well. And right, he was, yes. Type of yes. thing, yeah. But... Um, I did draw one cover with the orb on it, but it wasn't that one. Right. He was a recurring, I guess, if you had to assign a villain to a certain character, I think the orb would match up with Ghost Rider. I think you're right, yeah. In, in that respect, yeah. yeah. One of the odd ones. But, you know, the sci-fi thing, Supernatural, maybe it just kind of made sense to how all that, you know, kind of came together. Yeah. Was it a surprise, I guess, when you saw that, all right, issue 81, we're done here, Bob. Um, we're, we're shutting it down. Um, well, a surprise. We we knew we meaning myself and uh, uh, J M Demattis, the writer. Uh, we knew a f- few months in advance that uh, the book was going to come to an end, and so uh, we we were co-plotting the stories by that point, and so um, we we made sure to wrap it up. You know, we were given like uh, however many months till issue eighty one, and we made sure to tie up all of our loose ends and and give it a proper conclusion, which is what we what we our best to do i think it wrapped up pretty neatly that is probably the singular title that my brother who's just a little bit younger than myself collected and got all of those issues you know not realizing marvel spotlight before that and not really getting into volume two and continuing on that way i might try to hey say here here's a copy of this for you whatever he's like yeah okay but that was his main his main thing so but a great run uh with that too yeah oh it's terrific i I loved working with Roger Stern and with uh, and J.M. J.M. Demattis and uh, and I I loved the I, I kind of loved more the concept of being a monthly artist more than actually being a monthly artist because that's when it dawned on me like this is a lot of work and I'm I'm spending my entire life just staying up till two in the morning trying to crank out these pages and do a monthly book so a few months later after Ghost Rider ended. I had other work to do for Marvel after that. Uh, Jim Shooter came to me and said, hey, do you want to come back on staff as a full editor? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Nine to five sounds a lot better than, uh, you know, nine to nine to 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's when uh, I, made, I made the move back to editorial. Any thoughts, though, on how now with the 50th coming up, how, um, you know, how you feel about that? It's like, wow, 50 years, you know, you're a part of it, and uh, any other... Thoughts on that? I don't. I you know I, I I wasn't really thinking about it until you brought it up. Um, I I didn't didn't dawn on me that I mean it would be different if I was the guy who uh, created or co-created the character, so I had an involvement for fifty years. But I was only on the book for a couple of years. And, um, you know, then I moved on to other things. So maybe ask me in uh, let's see eighty four in two thousand thirty four will be the fiftieth anniversary of Transformers. So mm-hmm. I have more to I have more to do with the Transformers origins than with Ghost Rider. So maybe I'll have more of a 
more of an impact on me if I even remember what it is back when I'm that old. <laughs> so I guess we should have talked about Transformers last, huh? No, oh. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no, but Ghost, um, Ghost Rider is a great character, and uh, uh, I, I know there's been movies. I don't think he was. There... I, I watched one of them, which I, the first one, which I thought was pretty bad, and never went to the second one. Oh, come on. Uh, no. I know he appeared as, uh, in one season of uh, uh, Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., yep. and he showed some potential. Um yeah, so he's a, he's a great character. I think handled correctly, he could he, he he could be a great comic book. He could be a great TV show, movie, whatever. Um, yeah, but it's really not my character. It's Marvel's character to do with what they want. So I enjoyed overall. I enjoyed my time on Ghost Rider, and I was glad to have the opportunity to work on it. And I'm still working on it because I get people asking me for commissions all the time. I go to shows. They want me to do a Ghost Rider sketch. So I'm still. Uh, Living off the fumes of my time on Ghost Rider. <laughs> living off the flames. Come on, uh, living off the flames. No, no, no. Either way works. That's very good. I like that. It's still smoking yeah. for you there. The fumes are coming from the motorcycle exhaust. Ooh, I like that. Well, you know, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Well, I'm glad you said you did see the first film. By comparison, though, I thought the second one wasn't as good as the first. So They're both maybe, pretty terrible. But And Peter just goes flat across the board with that. I think the second one was darker. And we won't get too far into that. No, the flame was there. But nonetheless, I thought, though, there were a couple of wow moments in the first Ghost Rider movie. And I said, that's just like the comic book. You know, like riding up the side of the building vertically and stuff. Eddie, it's okay to like a movie. Yeah, but I just saw the (laughs) parallel and I said, oh, yeah, got it. That's cool. You know, of course, some things had to need to be if they would ever do that again later. Who knows? How are they going to set the man's head on fire? (laughs) They got it. They got that part down. Wow, they got this part. Well, now, yeah, nowadays that that's like not that's nothing. That's probably some guy coming out of you know, digital animation school can do that right off the bat. But, Thank you. But um, yeah, they, I'm I'm you know I'm glad that Marvel has all of those uh, tricks available to it to make Ghost Rider look like Ghost Rider is supposed to look, you know, in live action. But mm-hmm. you still have to put, you still have to put him in a good uh, a good script. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Now, in regards to, you mentioned earlier, you do commissions from time to time at conventions. You write, you edit, you draw, you color, you do this, you do that. You are the, like, it's it's a great thing to have as a professional in the realm of comics, to be able to have so many tricks up your sleeve and skills to have in your, you know, in your quiver. So what is, like, you know, do you feel like that should be what every comic creator should have in their disposal? I don't know. I, I wouldn't make any judgments on anybody else. They could, but I remember uh, when I worked at Marvel as, a, as an editor, uh, the Joe Kubert School would invite us editors, like, like not all of us editors, but like would invite one or two editors every every semester or every year to their school to talk to the up and coming students in their school, right? And so I remember going there once, and somebody there, maybe it was Joe Kubert, I forget who, um, was telling us. You got to tell these these kids, you know, these guys, these students of ours, that they got to learn how to letter. And I'm thinking, no, they don't. Nobody, no, but no artists at Marvel knows. I mean, are required to letter their own comic books. This isn't the 1940s, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, so, I, you know, it's like I, like you could be really proficient as a writer and not know how to pick up a pencil. That's fine. You know, I just happen to just fall into one. I mean, the great thing about working at Marvel was uh, I didn't know that much when I first started there, but uh, there, there were so many great people I got to work with and I learned from. 
and uh, and I, yeah, I wouldn't be who I am today as a writer, as an artist, as any of these things, if it wasn't for all the experience I got working with so many of these really talented people over the years. So, uh, and of course, you know, beyond that, I, I've honed my craft on my own. I still take an art class every week. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying it's all them and nothing is on me, but, you know, you just, you just pick and choose what you think you're, you're capable of doing and you, you try to get good at it. And so uh, I, I didn't expect to be a comic book writer, but I was there for a few. Like people have asked me, how did you come up with all those personalities and names for Transformers? And I said, yeah, by the time I was doing that, it was 1980, or November of 83 is when I started, I'd been working at Marvel for seven years. So it wasn't like I wasn't exposed to this kind of thinking, you know, coming up with character uh, attributes and character powers and all this other stuff that goes into putting into a character. So, you know, having that kind of experience is, is great. I mean, it's true of any profession. You, you learn on the job. So is, in this case, I was learning how to draw and write comic books. It is funny, you know, because you are, you know, an, you know essentially an artist first, kind of like Jim Starlin, where artist first, but yet for myself, I associate you more as a writer. Same thing with Starlin. Like, I always forget, oh, yeah, that's, like, you know, the main thing, but it's still, it's such a cool thing to see. Well, I will say, and this is no diss to writers, it's far, my personal experience, I can't speak for other artist writers, it's far easier to be a comic book writer than to be a comic book artist. <clears throat> you can, it's it, it just the, the amount of effort it took me to write a story was a lot less than to draw a story, which didn't mean I was hacking it out and just, you know, coming up with, you know, whatever half-baked idea that came to my head. It just meant that I would I would walk to I, when I was writing Transformers I was working full time as an editor as an editor at Marvel, so I tell people there's no way I could have been a full time pencil monthly penciler on a book but I could be a monthly writer on a book because I could walk from the pass station in New I was commuting from New Jersey I could walk from my pass station to the Marvel office which is about a ten to fifteen minute walk and in my head I could think of a plot and that night I can go home and type it up but I couldn't think of uh, how to draw the book and draw it while I was walking. <laughs> I still have to go home and draw the damn thing if I was, you know, thinking of an idea, which would still take a long time. So, in other words, I could work while I'm walking while, as a writer. Could not work as much as could not work as an artist while I was walking. It's a huge difference, and uh, so writing became uh, a much easier way for me to keep my hand creatively in comics while I was a nine to five full time editor. And when you know you've you've done comics where you've done you know the writing and the illustrations, you mentioned the whole you know rarely, very rarely. Were there any? Well, were there any panels from the uh, Wally Woods twenty-two panels that you would utilize in this? I have that. Yeah, yeah. I I I I, I've I've used I've referred to that at times. Yeah, and when I've done comic book seminars, I've done over the years on and off. How to draw comic classes and seminars and things, and I I keep that with me. I show that to people. What do you think yeah. is the most impactful uh, panel out of all of those? I don't, <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have it imprinted in my my brain. I don't know. I mean, they're all they're all good. Depends on the situation. Like this, there's, <clears throat> there's situations where you want to do a close up. There's situations where you want to pull back, and there's situations where you want to, you know, silhouette somebody for some dramatic effect. It really depends on every situation being calling for a certain kind of solution. And as you can imagine, there's 
there's no finite number of ways to tell a story visually. So, um, you know, there might be, you know, I might choose one way to tell a, tell a particular sequence of events in a, in a plot, and some other artist will, will certainly come up with a completely different way. Bob, the source that I got some material on you from talks about early examples of interlocking covers with, for example, the Prince Namor limited series. Oh, right. Um, That came about, and why do that? And was there others that had been like that? I'm thinking interlocking versus wraparound, but those, I guess, are a little different. I like interlocking more, to be honest. Well, I was just having fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, there's no real reason for it. Nobody knew about it. Um, So I just, when when people come to me at conventions with those Submariner, it's a four-issue miniseries, and they come to me with that four-issue miniseries uh, to sign their covers, for instance, I say, hey, did you know that these covers fit together? And I show that to them, and they're, like, astounded. Like, I've had these books all these years. I had no idea. So I took that idea uh, a few years later when I was in charge of Marvel Trading Cards. And I think from Marvel Universe Trading Card Series 3, I'm thinking, or Series 2, um, the hundred, they, they were, like, 200 cards or 180 cards or whatever. They came out on two different sheets of paper that before they were cut up into individual cards. So if you have all those cards for that 100-card sheet of paper, they all fit together. There's one cosmic background mm. that I had Joe Jesco, I commissioned Joe Jesco to paint, that all the card images, all the character images are against. And if you put all the 10 by 10 matrix of cards together, you have one giant poster. So I've taken that idea to, like, uh, ridiculous lengths. <laughs> I thought I'd heard or and or seen that exact concept, and and I don't recall if that uh, four issue Prince Namor series was just itself. There was a twelve issue, I think, of also Prince Namor, but that's and maybe that was it as far as mini series of of Namor. So I have to look at mine and see. Oh yeah, they do go together. Oh, also, but, I, I should again give credit to Marvel Universe because I might have been inspired by Marvel Universe because all the all the covers in Marvel Universe fit together. The official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Yes, that's yeah. where I was going next. In fact, when I remember it being the late 80s, I want to say like 89, Marvel offered you could buy the poster, which I subsequently had framed, and it's 50 by 50, and it's all those, I guess, initially, what, 12, I think, covers that made a big poster. Everybody's going from left to right, and that facing going that yeah, direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, the idea had been kicking around. In fact, I just did, I'm going to a convention a BotCon convention, which is a Transformers convention, uh, this Friday in Nashville, Tennessee, for the weekend. And um, the, uh, the the guy running the show asked me for a special promotional poster, so I suggested let's do two posters, um, an Autobot poster, the good guys, and a Decepticon poster, the bad guys, mm. and they'll fit together. So if you happen to be there for Friday and Saturday at the convention and get each poster, um, you can, you know, they don't fit together like every character's sticking their hand in the other poster, but there's a couple little places where they, they connect. So I had a little fun with that, too. That sounds very cool. In fact, BotCon 2010, I wanted to make recognition of Hasbro naming you as one of the first four human inductees into the Transformers Hall of Fame. Well, thank you for bringing that up. And, in fact, it's too bad we're on a phone call. I could hold up the, uh, the statue that they gave me, <laughs> but I don't, you can't do that over the phone. Uh, Can the statue transform yes. into something else? I was one of the first four, yes. That's great. 
Yeah, I thought it was nice that they recognized, you know, that I contributed some something significant to the Transformers mythology. So let's go to the uh, Uncanny X-Men trading cards hardcover book, or would you call it a mini because it's not a full-fledged-sized book? But well, it's a book. It's like almost 300 pages, I think. Uh-huh. You know, it's like it's not a pamphlet, <laughs> but whatever. I, I don't, I don't want to make. I don't. I don't. I don't define the terms. It's, uh, hardcover and it has a bunch of pages in it so well for being trading cards it makes sense to be this size i i i feel and you know starting with the inside cover of the wrapper and the back cover being the end of the wrapper that you get a set of trading cards in but also side note i just have to i'm sorry full disclosure i opened up the book's jacket and realized there's a bunch of characters on the inside of the jacket how cool is that yeah, you get more car- you get cards that were never created until this book. Yeah, and maybe you want to think I need another copy of the jacket to hang up and frame. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah. Anyway, but this came about. I don't know. It's the 30th anniversary of this because this was out in '92. Uh, Peter right. actually got me interested in the cards in in the sense of the podcast card that we have is based on what's the 91 series, I think. 92. It is 92 also, but not X Men. It's the uh, Marvel he- Universe series two. There we are. See, I knew he's good for the technical part of it. Uh, I just hand him out, and you know, and then then that respect, getting interested in the cards, and I think collecting a, a set or so. So I guess somewhere along the line, somebody said, "Hey, let's ha- let's put this all together. It's been thirty years. Let's come at it a different way or revisit this." Is that how that all happened? Well, you have to realize I was brought into the process after all that happened. So, mm-hmm. but my impression is that. Abrams Publishing, which is the publisher of that X-Men trading card book we're, we're talking about, uh, went to Marvel, as um, so many companies do these days, and said, "Hey, we have an idea for a life. We have an idea for a licensed Marvel product where we could we, we can both make some money." Mm-hmm. And uh, Abrams has a pretty good, long reputation in the publishing business. And like um, uh, we we spoke about a little bit earlier before the show began. They had a series of books like this for Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Star Trek, where they basically took these nostalgia brands of nostalgia brands of cards and reprinted them in a book, and got somebody, usually usually somebody who had something to do with the actual creation of the cards, to write a narrative, what they call an introduction, but it's a pretty it's a pretty long introduction, explaining how these cards came to be, and so after putting out a whole series of these books for other brands, at some point. Abrams, somebody at Abrams approached Marvel, and the Marvel senior vice president of licensed publishing, uh, Sven Larsen, uh, said, "Hey, you should you should contact this guy Bob Budiansky to do all the, the text for the book. He knows something about this." So the editor from Abrams called me up, and uh, or maybe emailed me initially, whatever. But we we we, still, we spoke, and and so that's how I got involved. And um, like I was the editor. Editor slash creative director of when Marvel brought trading cards in house instead of licensing them out to other companies to produce, um, Marvel brought them in house in 1990 with the first Marvel Universe set. I was a special projects editor, so the editor in chief at that time, Tom DeFalco, said, "Bob, you're in charge of trading cards." So for the next 11 sets of trading cards over the next four years, I was the person who oversaw those sets. So those were four Marvel Universe sets and. Uh, two, I think, three X-Men sets and three Marvel Masterpieces sets and one Spider-Man set. I think that ended up to 11. So that was what I was doing for, with a lot of my time during those years, is overseeing those sets. And uh, the one we're talking about was the first of the X-Men sets, and uh, 
was my idea to ask Jim Lee to uh, to draw the set. He was the hottest guy in comics, and he was drawing the X Men, and and you know I couldn't find a I couldn't think of a better person at that moment to, to do the set, and he agreed to do it, and uh, came up with a you know just a, a classic set of trading cards. Just he did a tremendous job on it, and uh, and then 30 years later, actually more like 28 or 29 years later, I was asked to you know write this narrative for the book that was going to come out. Nowadays, you know, anyone can pull up Wikipedia and look up the, you know, character bios and all this stuff, the history of the characters to an almost insane detail. But in the early 1990s, late 1980s, a lot of kids got their history of the Marvel Universe through the Marvel Universe trading cards, the X-Men Universe trading cards. And there's just something cool about the level of detail and love and care that those cards had. Well... yeah, so like trading cards was sort of like the gateway drug to comic books. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we knew by taking it in house rather than leaving it to some other licensed com- licensing company to just produce something that was sort of half-assed. We knew by bringing it in house and having Marvel editorial people, myself included, overseeing it, hiring the artists, hiring the writers getting what we wanted, bringing different angles, like we would change up from set to set to set the kind of information we presented to, uh, to, the, to the public so they wouldn't be completely repetitive every year. We, we knew that we were doing above and beyond what had been done before. And certainly the, the fans out there who bought those cards seemed to appreciate it um, because those cards were like the hottest thing going in those years. Like The, 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 the fans were just... You know, they were sell, they were sellouts. Like fans just bought it, bought them all up, and they uh, everybody was happy. You know, Marvel was happy. Uh, the trading card companies that produced the cards and distributed the cards were happy. The retailers were happy, and certainly the people who bought the cards mm. were very happy. So uh, it was a, it was a great experience. I like Bob. What I see early in this book is that you give a nod to and give a picture of at least one of the tops 1976 Marvel sticker set, which I guess had. A set of stickers, a stick of chewing gum in there, and I'm looking at a Cyclops image that says, I'm a sight for sore eyes, as he's shooting his <laughs> eye beam out. And I remember getting some of these stickers, and what, I was 10 years old, and I just stuck it wherever I could and not get in trouble for it. And and I think even that got collected into a, a Marvel trading sticker set uh, type book. It did, Eddie. You bought it. I watched you. Ta-da! <laughs> well, so, I just tried to, I think what I was trying to do in that might and the narrative I wrote was just to give a sense of <clears throat> without getting into too much without, without getting too deep into the weeds giving a sense of the history of Marvel trading cards and then we brought it in house and here's the difference so when we brought it in house we were able to come out with uh, what we thought were you know was a much much more in-depth kind of approach to producing Marvel trading cards a, a much more immersive experience for those people who collected these cards and also another thing regarding the book, uh, the, the Uncanny X-Men Trading Cards, the complete series. This uh, date of our recording, August 23rd. This is, uh, I would think, in advance. So you may have said to me that this is not quite out yet. No, it, it or... came out uh, last week, I believe. Because I got the What's Amazon the pre-order. Well, so then we had a release of about a week ago. Okay. I think the official release date for the book was August 9th. Even sooner than Peter's. Okay, yep, there we are. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's available. Should be. Yeah. 
We'll be seeing you in the future at any more shows. We uh, may have mentioned, if we didn't, we'll say it again, at uh, this year's Terrificon in Uncasville, Connecticut. Well, like I said, I'm going to uh, Nashville BotCon in a few, couple days. Uh, that's this coming weekend. And then I'm scheduled to be at a show, I think it's called RetroCon. Uh, not sure. It's, in, it's outside of Philadelphia in the middle of September, a two-day show. Uh, that's all I have on my plate for the remainder of the year, although that could change. I favor one that I had gotten interested in, and that is Super Mega Fest out in Massachusetts, Framingham. And it's it's a mix, uh, mishmash of stuff as well. Maybe needs more on the creative side, but it's a great outlet, and it's well attended, just FYI. Well, I will also uh, let you in on a little... Um I don't know, secret might not be the right word, but just my, my own personal um, strategy when it comes to shows. I don't go out asking to be at a show. If they ask me, then I consider whether I want to go there or not. So people do, like people like, this, you, know, like you just did, will come up to me and say, oh, you should go to this show or that show. I don't seek to go out to shows. So if they ask me, then, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have people name drop for me. So if you know the guy who runs the show in Framingham and want to mention my name, like, hey, you know, you ever consider Bob? You know, he's a, he, he, he did this and this and this. He'd be a good guest. Be my, be my, you know, feel free to do it. I, I, I thank you for it, for it in advance if you want. But if, if, if the show doesn't contact me, then I just go on with my, with my quiet little life here in, uh, in, in New Jersey. <laughs> that's a great way to look at things and it takes probably a lot of stress and stuff off you too in, in, a, in a great degree well I don't I have other I, I have other things to do like I have a day job <laughs> so I have a day job uh, my wife recently retired we like to travel so there's a lot of other things going on so I don't need to like chase down every show it's like I'm not dependent on on the income or the, 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 the you know the, the notoriety I get from going to shows so, so uh, yeah, but I like going to shows, and I like seeing people, I, my, my, my colleagues from my, my Marvel days, and I like running to them. I like meeting, meeting all the fans and talking to them. So I do like going, but I also don't, I don't uh, strive to go every weekend to a different show. So it's not my priority. But I do enjoy it when I can go. When I, can go. I, do, I do like it. But, Bob, you can go to Wawa, you can go to Bucky's, you can go to Sheets, you can go to Quick Check, all the different <laughs> spots. <laughs> yeah, New Jersey has everything you ever need. You don't have to ever leave New Jersey, right? <laughs> oh, man, I got so excited when a Wawa opened close to us. That's the end of that we story. Are, uh, Wawa opened uh, uh, half a mile from me just, like, last year. So well, I'm, really, I'm not really, like, in the Wawa fandom, so I, I don't know what the big deal is about Wawa. But <laughs> the sandwiches are good. I like the coffee. So I, I'm not a coffee drinker. I've heard great things about the sandwiches. I'll have to give it a try one. Do you like their? Do you like iced tea? Not that I would go out of the way for it. You know, supposedly not, that's uh, good. Yeah. Well, but the sandwich, anyway, the Italian I, sub. I think that's a subject for another <laughs> show, perhaps. The Wawa <laughs> <The> Wests. <laughs> Yeah. I, I tried. I tried. tried to distort the name of the podcast like that. We already had that when we first came up with the darn thing. Yeah. And see what happened? The we're Eddie still, and Peter show. We're still here. No, no. That would not have gotten past two episodes. What other shows can we find you at, Bob, though, when they do come around? What other shows? I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, <laughs> if, if people contact me, I don't 
that you've been to is where I guess I'm going at. Well, no. okay, there's a show in Wayne, New Jersey. And I, I guess I don't remember the names of the shows. They're all kind of blurred together. <laughs> you know, like I don't know what I, I I don't want to talk about past shows, but I, like I I had to turn down a show recently in in uh, Chicago, another Transformers based show. And I've done shows for this guy uh, on a few occasions. He's based in Canada. I've done a couple of shows in outside of Toronto. I did the show in Chicago for him a few years ago, but I can't go that weekend. So maybe next time he invites me, I'll be able to make it. <clears throat> I had to turn down a show, I think, the same weekend in, in uh, Louisiana. I've never been to that show before. I would have loved to go to that show. I have a cousin in Louisiana. It was real close to where he lived. <clears throat> so I could have seen my cousin, but I can't go that same weekend. I, I'm, I'm traveling that weekend. I can't go. So, um, so maybe, I'll come, maybe they'll, they'll come around again, but who knows? You know, so... It's just great to hear, Bob, that you're getting out there, getting back to the normalcy of what things are, and you know, and, and I'm sure the fans that come up to you are very appreciative, ourselves in particular, of what you've done and continue to do out there. So, oh, so thank, thank you. you for saying that. Yeah, I, like I said, I enjoy going to the shows and meeting the fans and talking to them. Great time. Yeah. And what kind of things, if anything, is is coming up for you, whether it be later this year or in the future, what you would like to get to be doing, going, whatever the case, working on. So this will probably you know, surprise you. Like, I don't have projects. I have a day job. <clears throat> so when I can, I'll do an occasional commission. <clears throat> I have a backlog of commissions. I'll say for your for, – I don't keep a website because I don't need it. Uh, I have more than I can handle already. So if people want to contact me who are listening to your show uh, about commissions, uh, they can – Find me on Facebook. Just send me a mess, uh, send me a, a Facebook message, and I'll uh, I'll get back to them. Um, I don't have any big projects coming up. I, you know, like I said, I just do occasional commissions, occasional shows. That's my connection these days to comics. I mean, more and more things are happening. It's like I don't even try, but like this book that we just talked about, I didn't go out seeking to write a book. Um, uh, publisher got me recently to commit to doing a cover for him, so I'll do the cover. Um, but, you know, I'm not really actively seeking more than I'm already doing, but I'm happy to entertain all, all possibilities that are out there when if people want to approach me. Well, again, Bob, we thank you very much for all you've done, and we look forward to seeing you again at some point. Yeah, well, nice talking to you guys, too, and, uh, yeah, happy to see you again. Yeah. Next time sure. I see you at a con, I'll treat you to some Wawa. <laughs> Well, okay, hopefully it won't be too stale that you had to buy it like 500 miles away before you came to the show. That'd be a terrible idea. But... Bottle that Wawa iced tea. Just make sure you get the right flavor. <laughs> okay. I'll have to look into the iced tea. I do like iced tea. See? I'm more of a Coca-Cola drinker, but uh, I'll have iced tea sometimes. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Bob Adiansky. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. Obsessed with Marvel, Bob Budiansky edition. Thank you, Bob, for sticking around for this. Okay. We'll try to make this as painless as possible. 50-50 is our ratio. Question number 120. What is the name for the Human Torch's maximum level of flame? Is it? Hot. Yeah. No, it's like the Buster Poindexter song, Hot, Hot, Hot. Well, Toyota's Hot, Hot, so, Hot. 
well, this came first, I think. Yeah. Solar flame, plasma flame, nova flame, or starfire. Wasn't it plasma? There, the Feels choice, like plasma. What is the name for the human torches? Maximum say, level of flame. I'll say plasma flame. You're saying plasma. Again, the other choices are solar, nova, and starfire. So we have two plasmas, and I'm going to say... Hmm, I was going to say nova, but, mm, but, now, an option, but now, now I'm thinking it might not be right. Because I'm, well, thinking, I'm thinking Starfire and Nova are names of characters, and I'm not sure if they would have made that confusion by giving him a flame of the same name. Gotcha. All but, right. So before I hit the button for the answer, I think I'm going to go to Plasma also because I was thinking Supernova, but that wasn't a choice. So B? I don't know. Supernova? No. Supernova. The answer is, oh, my Eddie sense was right. Nova Flame, that was the answer. Gosh darn it. Uh, okay. <sighs> I should have so, picked C. Oh, when will I, I ever know. learn? When, when, when? I don't know. I'll have right to get now, back boom. to that. Right now, boom, we're 0 for 1. But that's nothing truly unusual. So to the next question. Oh, Eddie, it's not unusual. Thank you, Tom Jones. Bob, we have music references in here, like it or not. I'm probably better at the music stuff than the model. All righty then. Now we're going to do a radio music podcast. Okay. Now, yeah. what was Bob Dylan, I mean, what was Willie Nelson on again? What? What, he was on? You mean like what, drug? No, that's what I thought too, but now <laughs> I was he's... I was going to the road. <laughs> I know, he was on the road again, yes, okay. Oh, on the road. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming. Question yeah. 999, and I'm not No, kidding. no, no. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's not me in a different language. Who framed Iron Roger. Man? <laughs> Roger Rabbit. Who framed Iron Man for killing the chameleon ambassador? Carnelian, sorry. Who framed Iron Man for killing the Carnelian ambassador? Was it... The Mandarin. Was it Mordecai Midas, Obadiah Stane, or Justin Hammer? I'll say Justin Hammer. I have no idea. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm going with that one as well. I never read much Iron Man. Same here. For killing the, I have a lot to read on that. So uh, Mordecai Midas is not too, too familiar, but we're going to go Justin Hammer? Okay, letter D. And it is correct. Okay. Right. One for two. Thank you for your Bob sense. That's one more than I expected to get. But yep. <laughs> well, you answered right away, but then said, I'm really not sure. And what do you know? Just with the gut instinct that kind of paid off in a sense. I'm just flipping here. Flipping, flipping. This is 2,500 questions. It takes a little while to get up to question number 1817. What a year it was. What was the name of Bruce Banner's college girlfriend in The Incredible Hulk number 226? Back to 1978. <laughs> Here we go. Is it Bob's reaction? Was it me? It's like Betty, April, Sally, or Jenny. Bruce Banner's college girlfriend, Incredible Hulk 226. Betty, April, Sally, Jenny. I was going to say Jenny also. I don't know why, but that's when I was reading it. I said, oh, I thought. Because you saw the name of the number. What? Wow. The number Jenny 8675309? Took you. Wow. Jenny, Jenny. (laughs) Although I did see the synapses like click right there. I'm like, Attaboy. Tommy two, that's Tommy Two-Tone, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. But yeah, let's ding, 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 ding. Better at the music stuff. Yeah. yeah. See, back to the music. That's it. That's what we're going to do. It's the Back to the Music podcast on The Marvelous, featuring your host, BB Bob Budiansky. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what do you think, Peter? Jenny? Letter D. I saw her number no, on the wall. No. No. The letter, it, it's C, Sally. Sally. Oh, well. Sally had to get a shot. Okay. Guess it did All work. I could think of is Sally go around the roses. Oh, wow. Okay. That almost sounds British to me. I'm not sure, though. No, mid-60s. Anyway, keep going. Okay. Uh, where's, in what group are we talking about there? As I flip to the next the roses. Uh, I'm trying to remember who. 
It was pre. It was like around 1963 or 64. It's um, definitely not Ferry Go Cross the Mersey. So you know. No, it was an, it was an American group. I think a New York City based group. I okay. can't remember though. I have a reference book nearby for that too, but I'm not quite near it. So. Okay. <laughs> Fourteen. And I'm just going to bug me after we get done. Sally, go around the roses. Okay. Fourteen eighteen. The question reads: Which of the following is not true about Ricochet Rita? Oh come on! And I say who? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Here we go. She was a Hollywood stunt woman. She is a mutant with four extra arms. She had an original identity of Spiral. Or she was working as a waitress in a cocktail <laughs> bar. Peter, I mean, uh, Bob, please pity me. Or she was once Longshot's ally. Ooh, not I like, true. I like the last one. Ricochet Rita. I think it is. Not yeah. true. She was a Hollywood stunt woman, a mutant. Oh, that, was with... like, that was what I was going to say until you said the long shot one. <laughs> okay. Uh, mutant oh, well. with four I, extra I arms. I got uh, detoured by that, so yeah. I had a long that, shot uh, the, option. The arms one. The arms one is the not that one because it's Spiral. This is the uh, Arthur Adams, Annie Nascenti uh, miniseries. Spiral is uh, the one with the arms. It's B. So it's well. What's the miniseries on who? Long shot. Long shot. Oh, right. The six issues. Okay. So we're gonna shoot and for I the. Do, I do remember Ricochet Rabbit or whatever. Ricochet Rita. <laughs> that too. Some... <laughs> All right. So letter D. We've been hitting D a lot. Let's do D again. No. Wait, I said the arms, and you're like, oh no. Oh, you said arms. The answer is B. <laughs> the mutant with four extra arms. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Peter on a technicality. We usually get that frequently. Uh, one more, just for, you know, ha-ha. Maybe we can get one more right. That would be nice. Salvage sort of some of this, or not. What did Stan Lee have for brunch on December 8th? I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or are you? No? All right. No. Le- no 1851. I'm, I'm not on command. Fine. Who was Roscoe? I had eggs. <laughs> and how were they cooked? Very well. I enjoyed them immensely. What? Me- medium rare. Meat. <laughs> 1851, the question is, who was Roscoe Sweeney? Was it the organizer, the fixer, the mass marauder, or crime wave? Roscoe Sweeney, again, the organizer, the fixer, the mass marauder, or crime wave? The fixer. I have no idea. (laughs) No idea. Bob, your reactions to all these questions are straight up. I'm regretting agreeing to doing all of (laughs) this. Well, so like, uh, now you know. If you guys be talking in Mandarin Chinese, it'd be making as much sense to me as I question. But keep going. <laughs> All right. So Bob's answer is the fixer. Peter, I guess. Sure. So sticking with the okay. Number X. Don't. I wouldn't follow me. I mean, I'm, I don't know what. <laughs> well, we had it when we did. We followed. We got that right on the one question at least. All right. Let's yeah. go. B. The fixer. And it is correct. All right, I got two of them. Yes, with our, with none of our help, Bob. I got to tell you, Spidey Sense was working. Or I something guess to get, get those right. Yeah, <laughs> I think Good. Bob is a ringer this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're out. Thank you again.